Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. Before we get started with today's interview with jouster Sarah Hay, I should just mention that we've been doing a bit of spring cleaning and rearranging things here at the Sword Guy HQ, and the podcast homepage has now moved over to the swordschool.com website. So the direct link to the show is swordschool.com forward slash podcast. But fear not, through the magic of the interwebicules, if you put guywindsor.net forward slash podcast into your browser, it will go to the swordschool.com site because that's what we can do these days with this marvellous technology. I'm here today with Sarah Hay, who has been jousting since 2008, moved from Australia to Oman in 2016 to be closer to the jousting circuit, and in 2018 won the Queen's Jubilee Horn at the Royal Armoury's Easter Jousting Tournament in Leeds. So, without further ado, Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So, whereabouts in the world are you now? So, right now, I live in Jeddah which is um, by the Red Sea in Saudi Arabia. What took you there? Uh, I'm here for work, so I'm in education. So I work in a school here. Um, it's inconvenient. To, it's convenient to be here in Saudi Arabia while COVID has been raging because it's, uh, it's been a nice place to be and, uh, you know, comfortable and it, it seemed really safe while the pandemic was happening. So, uh, yeah, I'm here much closer to Europe than Australia and uh, yes, well, well positioned to, to head north when the opportunity arises. Fantastic. So, okay, the numbers I just read out to everyone um, seem kind of crazy. Like, you started jousting in 2008 and I know you won an international competition two years later. Um how on earth did you get that good at jousting that quickly? Okay. Um, it's, I guess it's, I was lucky in that when I saw jousting for the first time, I already had a long history of successful um, equestrian sports. You know, I'd, I'd been riding ah, for okay. a very long time and I'd been competing as a five, since a five-year-old in a range of different equestrian sports. So when I came to jousting, I had some skills in place. What I didn't have was sort of the opposite to how a lot of other people come to jousting. Um, a lot of other people come to jousting when they've had a lot of weapons experience. You know, maybe they've come through the SCA and uh, they've learnt to ride and they've applied their, their weaponry skills on horseback. I brought all the horse skills first, many, many years of horse skills first, um, and then learnt the weapon skills second. So it was um, the opposite experience for me. So it was, it was interesting, you know, when I started, one of my besties said, um, 
it's as if everything I'd ever done had led me to this moment of jousting, which, you know, became my passion. Just as soon as I saw it, I thought, wow, this is something that I have to do. So I guess um, improving for me uh, relatively quickly was because of the combination of skills that I had already had before. Um, but, you know, when, when I saw it and decided this is it, I have to do this, I was totally committed I had to travel 250 kilometers one way just to get three hits. So when I found a trainer, <laughs> um, you know, I had to pack up my horse, get it, get it in the horse float, drive for a number of hours, and I only used to get three hits because balsa is actually very expensive. Balsa uh, is what the tips are generally made of, and I've heard that that's actually an endangered wood. Um, so not kind of been endangered. We wouldn't use it at all, but there's not so much of it anyway in the world. It's very expensive. And so we, we couldn't actually afford to break a lot of balsa. So, uh, when I actually started, I was terrible. And part of that, you know, was, was psychological because when you get on a horse with a weapon and you have to hit another person, that's, a, that's a striking experience, excuse the pun. Like I had never hit anyone before. I'd only wow. hit balls with baseball bats, you know, balls with cricket sure. bats. Um, but when it comes to actually striking a person in the chest, I mean, normally that would be an act of um, violence, you know, in order to really hurt someone, and I wasn't interested in that. So um, I really had to get my head straight at the start to think that, well, this is the game, this is the sport, and if I'm not prepared to hit this person, then I need to stop and not play this game at all. So I, um, you know, I'm the one who controls my thoughts, so I got over that pretty quickly, and then um, I was just very, very determined, you know, as much practice as I could get, which which wasn't much, um, I took that opportunity, and um, I very quickly had the opportunity to ride at a um, a medieval festival in Sydney one weekend, and um, yeah, I just had an absolute ball. I, I got a couple of hits. I still still wasn't that good, but um, I was just in love with the sport. And you know, three days after I rode in my first um, medieval jousting show, I drove a thousand kilometres north to a tournament in Brisbane. Now, at that point, I didn't even know what a tournament was, but I just knew I had to do it. You know, I, I threw my horse on the back of the float and I sang all the way. It was a two-day trip. I had to stop and, and stay at a showground overnight with my horse in the stable and I was sleeping in a in the horse float, I think. Oh, I sang all the way. I was just in love with the this idea of jousting and, um, oh, my God, it was just the most wonderful experience. So, So I was totally um, passionately involved. Everything I did was about to get as much practice as I could to get as good as I could. Um, and then, you know, by the time 2010 came around and I went to Europe for the first time, um, you know, I was petrified. I was absolutely petrified on that first uh, trip to, to Europe because I had no idea how I was going to go. The whole point was that I wanted to see how did I match up to the people who were doing it, you know, where it was really done. And so I had no concept of how my skills would match um, everyone over there. I didn't know anybody. I didn't know a soul. All I had was the contact 
of my trainer and um, Fred Perot, who was running this tournament in Belgium. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm generally a shy person, so it was a big deal just for me to to be there and, and meet everybody. You know, that was a big deal in itself. And um, I was petrified that I would do badly, and um, you know, um, that would be the end. So for me to be a successful jouster, I'm very focused mentally on the task, and I visualize myself being successful, and so. Um, even though I was petrified at that first tournament, I intended to win. I had no idea whether I would or not, but I intended to. And you know what? I didn't find out. I did win that tournament. Um, it was amazing. Such a wonderful, amazing moment. Um, I only found out years later that at that tournament, I, I beat the European champion at that time. I didn't even know. I just, I didn't even know, you know. I was just there having a fun time and having a go and it was um, a brilliant experience, great experience, and it it just went on from there. Actually, I've been making notes while you were talking and there's like three or four things I need to kind of circle back on. Um, Okay. The first is, you know, I've been teaching people to fight with swords for a really long time, maybe Mm -hmm. 20-odd years now, and so many of my students have a kind of culturally induced hang-up about hitting people. And so when you said, you know, you're, you're, initially you had difficulty with the idea of, like, actually just hitting somebody with a lance, that's true for maybe two-thirds of the people I've ever trained. And yeah. getting getting them over that that hump. Um, and some people, they never get over that hump. And they basically they just don't like hitting people to the point that they end up basically just doing sword forms and, like, cooperative drills uh-huh. and they just they just don't ever want a fence uh-huh okay yeah, yeah uh, well so you're not I, alone <laughs> yeah that that's interesting you know well the way i viewed it is that we are each responsible to present ourselves as a safe target that means wearing proper armor so that you mm-hmm. can be hit anywhere and um you know it's it's my responsibility to be to be safe and right. um I actually, you know, was training with someone one day, a, a woman here in Australia, and I hit her in the, the right place. I hit her in the shield and my lance went up, which it should, and it ticked her under the chin. Now, she oh. was wearing an avantail that wasn't properly lined. And so um, I finished that pass and they told me what was hap- what happened. And I said, well, that's it. I can never joust you again until you have equipment where I can hit you in the shield and the lance can go up, which it should, and it, it, it can never hurt you. Otherwise, you know, you could kill someone. Right, and and you wear armour so that other people can hit you. It's like when I put my gear on for sparring, if, I, if I'm not wearing gauntlets, my student or whoever I'm fencing with can't go for my hands. Yeah. Right, so, so we, we put the gear on so that you can get hit. And, yeah, adequate gear is... And, and I guess... Yeah, on if you're using sort of lances that will break, and they're supposed to break on horseback, you absolutely can't be expected to do that, to do that kind of delicate force control that that we do mm. with swords. Yeah, I mean we, you know, we're going really fast. We're, right. we're moving towards a moving target on a moving animal. An animal has emotions. <laughs> yes. And who's who's really in the moment, you know, this animal you're on, this is what I love about it. To me, you know, riding a horse is as close as you can get to riding a dragon. 
you know? Yeah, very true. And you think, wow, here I am in a knight on a dragon and I'm facing <laughs> off against another knight on a dragon. How cool is this? I mean, horses have have feelings and emotions and, and they are an equal partner in this. So yeah. um, it's not just hitting a target. It's much, much more than that and, and being safe in that moment and, um, yeah, being confident that the other rider can hit you, no, no, you know, anywhere and you'll be okay. Okay, now we are going to get into what it's like to get like seriously whacked while jousting in a minute. But um, let me just to start back a little bit. So you saw this jousting done for the first time and you thought, oh my God, I've got to do that. How did you actually make that happen? Okay, well, um, <laughs> it's actually quite funny because when I, when I first saw it, you know, I've always been quite taken with armour and the whole idea of knights and castles and whatnot. So um, when the joust first finished, the knights um, got off their horses and queued up. They were only men uh, jousting at, at this tournament and queued up to have photos with all the women. Well, of course, I was one of the women, wasn't I? I was one of the damsels li lined up to have my lovely photo with the knight. And I have it. I still have that photo, of, you know, all gushy and thinking, oh, isn't this wonderful? Isn't he fabulous? But then as soon as I finished that part, I strode down to the herald and said, how do I get to do this? So I was absolutely determined. I'd already decided that this was going to happen for me. So, and as my friend said, as I mentioned before, you know, to me, it was the culmination of many things coming together. It was a long um, history of equestrian sport, different mm -hmm. equestrian supports for me. It was about dressing up. It was about, you know, medieval things. It was about feasting. It was about heraldry. All of that was just like a magic, sort of a jigsaw that came together and, and um, it was everything that I, that I loved and wanted to do. So at that particular tournament, I was introduced to the organisers of the tournament and they um, brushed me off completely. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah, yeah. They basically <laughs> well, walked... you've shown them, haven't you? <laughs> well, yeah, they, they walked away and I went, oh, well, geez. Because I said, you know, wow, how do you get armour? Um, where do you start? I really want to learn. And it was the case of, yeah, 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 um, we're off to yeah. lunch. So I thought, well, that doesn't dent my enthusiasm whatsoever. I'd already decided that this was going to happen for me. <laughs> so I went to the next medieval tournament, and that was around Sydney, and I did the same thing. I approached the tournament organiser, but I got a different response this time. So he agreed to to teach me, and, um, yeah, it's uh, – I, he was going overseas to compete for a number of weeks and then came back and we were about to start and then he broke his leg. So he was out okay. for a number of months. Um, and then horse flu hit <laughs> in oh, no. Australia. Yeah, that was a devastating time for everybody. So from the time I saw it and decided I was, it was going to happen and when I actually had the chance to start, there was quite a delay. I think it was about six months of a delay. But... Uh, then, you know, once we were able to travel with our horses again, I was doing the 250-kilometre trip one way to get a few hits in. And, um, yeah, I, I started and, you know, all I thought about was jousting from then on. So did you already have armour or did you have to get the armour as well? I didn't have any armour. I didn't have anything. So I borrowed um, bibs and bobs and had a minimum amount um, to keep me protected. So I had my head and my neck and my torso. Um, I think I had knee cops. Uh, that's it, you know. And um, 
that was enough to keep me safe for for what I was doing. And yeah, that they it was recommended to me um, to get to buy a cheap armor, and I said okay. no, no way. You know, I, I was looking. That. No, no, because I thought, well, I know I want a really good armor. I know I want to do this internationally at some point. So why not just get the armor that I want? So as right. a t- as a total novice, not knowing anything about armor, you know, I was thinking, well, do I want to look like a penguin or do I want to look like a pig or, you know, like a dog? <laughs> because really, you know, as a person who doesn't know about armor, you look at how it makes you look, yeah, you know? Yeah, sure. So um, I found one that I loved and I just decided, well, that's it and I'm not going to waste my money on cheap armor. I'm going to get the one I want. And I'm so happy that I did because I've had the same armor. I have two now. I have a 14th century one now as well. But um, it's just done me so well. It's traveled the world so many times and it still looks great and it, it still feels great to joust in. Well, that's, that's it. Like poor people can't afford to buy cheap tools because then the cheap tool breaks and you just yep. have to go and buy the expensive one. It's exactly. much better just to save up and get the right stuff from the beginning, if you possibly can. Uh, or just, I mean, when I bought my armour, I, I bought it sort of bit by bit. It was cuirass first, then it was helmet, then it was arms, and then it was just shoulders and extra bits. And, you know, it sort of went from there. I didn't didn't you know get it all in one go and then hand over enough money to buy a new car. It was bit by bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was really lucky at the time because um, I had my armour made in spring steel, Mm-hmm. Because I I knew that I'd be travelling internationally at some point, and yeah. I you know weight was going to be an issue, uh, but and I was also really lucky that my armourer he was actually an artist um, he hadn't had he made a full armour before I'm not sure I think he had but he but he hadn't made it in, he hadn't made one in spring steel before so he okay. grossly underestimated the time it would take. <sighs> To make the armor, so yeah. I got the armor at about you know a fifth of the price wow. that it should have been because he said I will never ever make another armor like this again for that price. That's unbelievable. <laughs> you know? So I was very yeah. very very lucky. Yeah. Who made your armor? Alex Schreibner. He's uh, I think it's Talowan Forge. He's uh, an amazing armorer. He has such attention to detail. And, you know, if you look closely at my armor, there are strips along the arms and, and the legs that are actually hand etched and they're plated in real gold. And he's wow. even put a little flower um, behind uh, one of the knees just just for me so that nobody Aww. else can see it. But the detail is exquisite. It's, it's really lovely. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's, it is quite a thing to get your armor done and it has to be done right by the right person i mean the first armor i got i got it over the internet and this is how i know not to buy cheap armor and when my when it arrived and i put on the legs first there was enough space down the back of my greave that i could and did just to prove the point put a bottle of wine down the back of each oh dear and it's yeah, supposed that's to be not skin good. tight right yeah <laughs> it's supposed to be yeah. skin tight um yeah it was it was just it was a disaster I ended up selling it to the um, National Opera in in Helsinki. Oh wow! So, yeah, so at least at least I got my money back. I did. Um, <laughs> so they, the opera wanted to borrow a sword, and so this props person came over and she saw my armor and was like, "Oh my goodness, um, can we buy that?" And I was like, "Oh, um, well, I suppose I could be persuaded." <laughs> yeah. So I ended up, and I said, "It's completely useless for wearing." But it's, if you want it for decoration, then I can sell it to you in good, 
with a good conscience. Yeah. And she was like, yeah, yeah, it's just just for this this show we're putting on. We want a suit of armor in the, in the corner. It'll be useful for other shows as well. And and I I, I named my price, which was what I paid for it. And she was like, yeah, that's fine. I was like, oh, shit, I should have put up the price up a bit. But yeah, so. <laughs> it's interesting, though, because, you know, I remember seeing photos of me um, at my first tournament, that one, I, a thousand kilometres, you know, the one I sang all the mm-hmm. way to up in uh, Brisbane, or north of Brisbane, actually. And that was when I was just in with bibs of bobs of armour, you know, borrowed armour. Yeah. And it's the idea, the, your self-identity, I couldn't believe the person in the pictures was actually me because it was right. so epic, you know, to see on the horse and the lance and the armour, even though that wasn't good armour. Um, it really, it was really staggering to me to, to think, wow, this is a new identity. Like This is, this is who I am now. And with my armour, my 15th century armour, it, it's so beautiful um, that it's such a, it's like a baby, you know, we created it. My armourer created it, but it was my ideas, you know, and we were testing it together and it was a real, um, I mean, he might not call it co- a collaborative project because he obviously has he skills. Did all but, work, yeah, yes. he did all the work. I couldn't do any of that work, but, you know, um, he needed me to be able to do it, you know, my body obviously. Sure. But it felt like this really special thing and when he actually handed it over, it was almost an emotional experience you know this thing that we'd been through right. together and it had been completed and and now you know um it's such a part of who i am and and when i see photos of me in the armor i i just identify so much that this is the real me i feel most me when i'm in my armor and on a horse it's i feel so connected in that steel Do you know i think most of the people listening feel that way when they pick up a sword mm. like when I'm holding this, this is who I'm supposed to be. Yeah, it's great. Great feeling. Yeah, And, and it's great that, that we have that available to us. I mean, you know, great that you discovered the armour or you've gone through your whole life with an armour-shaped hole in it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I mean, one of my students many years ago, um, must have been like 2003 or so, she said to me, there's been a sword-shaped hole in my life for 20 years. Wow. She was about 30 at that point. Yeah, right. that's powerful. Mm. Right, yeah. And so when, when she saw, you can actually do swords, swords are real, boom, she was there. Um, yeah. Okay, so I, I, think, I think most people listening will probably understand exactly what you mean. Mm, that's good. Um, okay. You said something just sort of in passing, which, I, again, I just wanted to, to start back and dig a little bit deeper into it, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, you said, I control my thoughts. Right? Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. And I absolutely agree. I'm, I'm not disputing that in any way. But it is, it's the gateway into the, the area of... Um, how do you overcome the sort of negative self-talk or bad sort of bad running commentary that goes on in your head or goes on in people's heads that stops them doing the things they really want to be doing? Yeah. yeah th- so that's... How, how, how did you get to the point where you can say casually in passing, um, sort of almost like a throwaway line as it's just a, it's just a casual statement of fact, 
I control my thoughts. Mm. Well, I was actually really lucky growing up, and this wasn't um, to do with jousting. As a 12-year-old, I actually did some um, a course about how to be in control of your thoughts, basically. Okay. Um, it wasn't esoteric or anything like that. It was it was just practical tools to um, be able to visualize and and tools to be able to um, get yourself into an optimal state of thinking. Mm-hmm. So basically, a, a, a calm yourself so that you slow your um, brainwave rhythms to an alpha state. So normally we would be in a beta state, which is a negative level, questioning, criticizing. A deeper level, the next deeper level is an alpha state where you are calm, when you're in a state of flow, when you're focused, um, when everything seems to be going right. So I've grown up as a competitive rider being very focused in my thinking, be very being very clear in my visions about what I want the outcome to be. And that has been, I guess, a powerful way to deal with um competition. But interestingly, when I started jousting, it was a bit controversial because I I was given a bit of a hard time, well, a very, very hard time, in fact, by um, a guy and uh, who was in the jousting field. And when I, that was part of the reason why I was petrified when I went to Europe for that tournament, because I was being bullied. And um, I felt, um, petrified that if I had made a mistake at that tournament, then everything that he was putting out into the world about me would have seemed to have been true, you know, even though it wasn't. So the the stakes were very high. The stakes were incredibly high for me. It was all or nothing. Mm -hmm. And and to the point where I thought, well, what's the point of even going? You know, what's the point when all this garbage is going out that's not true? Um, so I, I said, you know, damn it, I'm just, I'm going, I'm going. I don't care. I don't want to not have a go. I just, I just want to have a go. I, I, I really want to see what it's like to joust in Europe. Uh, I want to see how my skills match up against the others. So I actually came up with the technique that that might seem a bit, little bit gross, but it worked. And but but it was almost like physical training, but it was mental training. So I had such negative, such terrible, terrible negative things said about me. I imagined this filthy, stinking toilet in my brain, and every single time one of these negative thoughts came into my brain, I immediately I recognized it. I said, "Okay, I don't want this thought in my brain or in my mind. Uh, the only place this thought deserves to be." is in that filthy, stinking toilet. And then I actually had a a, a physical action. I actually pressed my finger and that was me imagining flushing flushing that toilet and flushing that thought away. And so every time another thought came in, I I would mentally put it in this horrible, stinking toilet and flush it away. And I just kept on doing that hundreds and maybe thousands of times until I stopped caring anymore. And wow. so I, that was a really very, very successful um, strategy. For, and it seems very basic, but, you know, other people might go about it in another way. But for me, this concept of this disgusting place, that, that was the only place that such thoughts deserved to be. But the flushing of it, like I now release that thought, it's gone. I'm, I don't allow this thought in my head. It doesn't deserve to be there. I won't acknowledge this as the truth. And I, I trained myself 
um, to get over that negative self-talk. And, you know, that was just at the start of my career. And then um, in a tournament, um, you know, jousting, it keeps you very present. It's, it's a bit like scuba diving in a way. You know, when you're scuba diving, you're, you're very present in the moment, enjoying the adventure that's unfolding in front of you. In jousting, it all happens very quickly. You know, you're at the start of the list, you get handed the lance, you, you start, you hit, and then you're at the end, it's over. You know, yeah. it's, it's all these very short, very, very short, quick experiences that, that come together for a whole tournament. And so I'm always looking ahead. I'm always laser-focused. If I miss... Um, you know, it's like, ah, in the moment, but then it's over and I'm not thinking there. I'm thinking forward. I'm thinking about the next one. So I've trained myself um, because, you know, as I said, I believe I'm in control of my thoughts. I control the way that I want to think. I um, am a very aware of my thoughts. And so I really put a lot of energy into um, thinking the way I choose to think to get the most successful outcome. Do you happen to remember the name of that course that you took when you were 12? Alpha Dynamics. Alpha Dynamics. Okay. Yeah. That, that's really interesting because, again, I don't suppose most of the listeners are going to be taking up jousting anytime soon, but absolutely <laughs> everyone knows what it's like to have their mind taken over by negative thoughts, particularly negative thoughts put there by somebody else. Yeah. And and having having a sort of an approach that can work to you know, get rid of that is super powerful. Yeah, well, it, it worked for me, and it was really it was really a uh, a hard thing to do because it was very damaging um, what was being said about me. Um, but yeah, that was the solution, and it it really worked. And what do you think that person's motivations were? Oh, or, or do you even care? You know what? Do, the, the, they the, don't deserve to be thought about. No, just I just don't care anymore. You know, it's like that. That's Good. their deal. It's not my deal. I don't care. I've just moved on. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Yes, cons- yes. Consign them to the stinky toilet of history. Exactly the stinky toilet of history. I love that. Um, okay, so now my next question is: okay, most listeners will not have had the experience of being on a horse doing jousting my own I should probably make my own experience like clear I've I've done a bit of riding mm-hmm. and I've had a go at sword fighting on horseback with plastic swords because you know the, the horses are conscripts yeah um and you know great fun and it's really obvious to me that I am nowhere near a good enough rider to be any use as a jouster and I'm you know I'm, I'm never going to get to the point where it's actually sensible for me to joust. And that's uh-huh. probably true for a lot of the listeners. So what is it actually like having some lunatic in armour charging at you with a pointy stick? Yeah. Well, one of the first things that you'll be told if, if you're going to start jousting is not to look at their lance. Because okay. if you do, it's petrifying. It's really scary. Can you imagine if someone's coming towards you uh, directed at your heart, basically this big long stick, essentially uh, that you can't you can't not flinch and turn your head away and you know brace for the impact. So um, you just have to be confident enough to take the hit and not worry about it, 
uh, and be focused on giving the hit. So you, you can't come into jousting and be willy-nilly about it. You have to be really intensely focused on the, the target area, which is the shield of the other person. So um, there's a lot of things that have to go right, you know, and when it, when it all clicks, it feels really easy. But when it doesn't click, it just feels impossible. So, you know, one of the, the first things you've got to be able to do is manage your horse. And so I guess that's one advantage that I have because I was a very strong rider um, all my life that when I'm normally jousting, it's normally international. So I'm riding a horse I don't know. You know, sometimes you get on the horse just before the tournament or just before the joust and you're riding this emotional huge animal that you don't know. He doesn't know you, yeah. doesn't know me. The horse horse doesn't trust you yet because he doesn't know you. Of course. Of course the horse doesn't trust you. And they're going into a scary situation, which can sometimes be scary or sometimes it's terrifying on some horses. You know, I was on a horse once and the horse was so petrified I could feel his heartbeat all through my body. It's like boom, boom. I'm thinking, oh, far out. I feel like I'm on a stick of dynamite, you know. Like I, I just, my heart sank and I thought all I could do is be safe, you know. So I yeah. I just I just didn't worry about trying to be competitive in that tournament. All I wanted to do was to take care of that horse, give it a good experience and give the other rider a good target so that they had a chance right. to get points. But I was just out of the competition. Um, it's not, you know, there have been a couple of times when that's happened, but fortunately that's not most of the time. So anyway, when you're when you're jousting, you have to, you know, line up at the the same time as the other rider, so you've got to you've got to keep your eye on the the rider at the other end because they're coming from the opposite direction and um, you've got to give a signal to the to the person who's handing up the lance so you to so that you're ready for the lance and so you're trying to manage your horse who's normally extremely excited and pick up this heavy lance and keep your eye on the other person that might be, you know, uh, 40 meters away because you both want to start at the same time you both want to grab the lance and then salute which means hold the lance up to show each other that you're both ready because the idea is you take off at the same time and you hit each other in the middle so um yeah i mean in a tournament it can get very exciting because they usually play epic music and there might be a big crowd and they're clapping right. and cheering so you've got to manage your excitement and emotions and I don't know about other people, but for me, I'm very affected by music. Um, I'm, I feel like my soul just automatically attunes if there's music. Um, somehow it just deeply, deeply affects me. So, um, yeah, the, the epic music is, is you've got to manage your heartbeat with all this wonderful music going on. And then um, it's like when you start, the everything becomes quiet, because you're so focused on that target. And, you know, when I say a target, the target is the shield, but I'm not aiming for the shield. I'm aiming for like a one centimetre square part of that shield. I'm so laser focused on hitting that um, it all becomes like a tunnel, I suppose. And all I can see, I'm I'm riding the horse, but I'm not thinking about the horse. Um, I'm just focused on that target. And then, of course, once once you've hit... Um, then you've got to manage the end as well. So you've got to calm your horse down, you've got to lift the lance up, and you've got to stop. Because you know what? Sometimes at the end, after you've done the hit, if it's a really big hit, the horse might get a fright and the horse might take off. Yeah. So then you've got to manage the end of the pass. Now, if you've got an audience that is not 
too far away, you've got to sometimes you have to throw the lance down and grab hold of the reins. Of course, you can't see the reins because you can hardly see anything with your armor on. You know, the ocularium mm. is, is usually very narrow for safety. And uh, you've got to manage a horse that might be bolting, heading straight towards a crowd. So, um, yeah, it can be, it can, there's a lot to, to think about depending on uh, the type of horse that you're riding, the, the emotions, the emotional response of the horse in the moment, the emotional response of yourself. Um, there's a lot of things to manage and, um, and get right. But, but when everything is going well, it feels easy. Um, mm. Yeah, but that doesn't always happen. Okay, so have you ever been knocked off when jousting? Uh, not in a joust. I Not in a tournament. Um, but when I was training once, it was quite funny. It was in Australia. This is very, very early days. Uh, I think this was before my first tournament. The guy who was teaching me, he actually had the newspaper come out to take some pictures of him. So we were doing a pass and his horse propped, which meaning he dug his toes in and sort of balked. And so yeah. my horse thought, well, my God, there must be a panther in the about to pounce on us, you know, because horses get very skittish. So my horse dug his toes in and stopped and we both we both fell off immediately. <laughs> Bang, hit the ground. And so yeah. the, the, the newspaper person must have got a fabulous photo that we never saw. Of us both charging at each other and the horses screaming to a halt, and we both hit the deck before we even think about it. So, so that was a, the good thing about a fall like that is is you're on the ground before you even know it, you know. Yeah. So, so that was the only big fall. Another time, I um, I was hit hard in a practice session and my saddle slipped. So I got to the end of the list and I was about you know ten inches off the ground, hanging onto the saddle. And I thought, well, this is just stupid. The horse had stopped, so I just plopped down. Uh, so I haven't fallen off yet. It could happen at any time. Because I, I have the experience of being thrown while wearing armour, and it's much worse being thrown on the ground when wearing armour than it is without the armour. Because uh... oh, well, that's been my experience. Because you know the the surface impact isn't as bad, but it rattles you around, and bits of armour bite you in various places as the as the ground hits you. And it's absolutely horrible. I'd much rather be thrown on the ground without wearing armour at all. Well, um, yes. But see, one of the big things about jousting is, you know, you're wearing armour, but you've also got this massive lance um, that you've got to manage as well between your soft parts and the armour. So the lance cl is clamped under the, the right yeah. um, armpit. And you don't want to fall on that. Oh, no, but... Oh my God, the uh, the bruising that we get on our arms and the pinches. You know, by the end of a tournament, I've even had skin ripped off the inside of my arm. It's so painful just to hold the lance. Um, it's unbearable. Um, yeah, but I guess you know everybody's armor is different. But the pinching, wow, you can you can tell in a, a, a jouster's arms by the bruising on the inside of the right arm. <laughs> and and that's, that's true for armor combat on foot too. It's like it's armor bites. And after a oh, while, yes. after a while, they're love fights. Really, it's the armor telling you that it's there and it's going to look after you. <laughs> Actually, That's the way to think of it. you remind me of a very funny picture I saw once. There was a novice jouster. He was in a novice jouster in New Zealand, and he was obviously quite scared and was holding onto his lance for grim death. You know, he'd had it tucked under his elbow and was ready to go in the right position, but he fell off. 
for some reason. And anyway, but but he's mid-fall and he's still got the, the lance tucked under his elbow at the right angle. So he's falling to the ground mid-air, but he's still got that lance tucked in there. It's absolutely hilarious. <laughs> I'm guessing he fell off because he really didn't quite want to be on the horse. Oh, I can't remember. I just remember this picture of this lance still couched correctly mid-air. <laughs> Very funny. Uh, Okay, so you have quite a broad experience of the jousting scene, jousting in Australia and jousting in in Europe. Um, Does your gender make a difference? Yeah, it's, um, it's a good question. At the end of the day, no, because you can't tell I'm a woman underneath the armour. Um, I heard someone um, gasp once, you know, when I lifted my, my visor, they went, ooh, it's a woman. You know, they didn't, they didn't right. realise until the end of the uh, the tournament. Um, the differences, I guess, are in the size. The size of the guys is can sometimes be a lot bigger. So I've been jousting a man once in Texas and he was three times the size of me. So the power that they have um, can be significantly more. But often you'll find with the females, the, the, the good ones, they've got a strong riding background. So our connection with the horses is often much better. So, you know, connecting with a horse that you don't know is um, a really important part of international jousting. Some people might say that the difference between a local jouster and an international jouster is that an international jouster has to get on a horse they don't know using lances they haven't used before um, and, you know, just deal with those situations very quickly. And... I don't know whether it's uh, women connect better with horses. I don't know. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that's the same for both genders. So. Yeah. But the women who are good jousters are very good riders and um, we joust as equals with guys in the tournament. So sometimes that, that evens us up, I think, that um, when you're a, a very competent rider, you can ride your horse better and get yourself in the, in a, the right position to be able to strike. Um, mm-hmm. And so that can help you manage the pass. I mean, some would say that you would lose a pass at the start of the pass. If you haven't got your horse in control, if you're not starting calm and, and with everything in the right place, then you don't have enough time to recover before the hit. So as a, as a good rider, um, well connected to my horse, um, that helps me p- position well. Apart from that... Um, I find sometimes, sometimes, not for all guys, but, you know, the the aggressiveness can get up that maybe it's the testosterone where they get really, um, you know, fired up by the jousting. And um, I tend to stay um, fierce but focused and just calm. I really try and slow my heartbeat. Um, I really try and um, be calm in the face of the combat and Perhaps that's because I'm female and I don't have that testosterone raging through my body. Uh, I I would see that 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 is an advantage in that um, I can think clearly. I'm laser focused. I'm not overrun with with this intense, um, you know, um, ambition to um, to be the king. I don't know to be the the victor. To be the victor. I just want to be accurate every single time. That's all. So yeah, I think ah, okay. I think those aspects. So so the jousting scene has been relatively welcoming. Oh yeah, yeah. I've um, good. 
I've been really embraced overseas and uh, really grateful for the way that uh, both the men, because it's mainly men, that the men treat me as a just another jouster on the field. You know, I had a guy a guy once um, say to me, "Oh, I don't want to hit a woman." And I found that a bit condescending. And I said, well, you better hold on, mate, because I'm going to hit you hard, you know, in a nice way. Quite right. But, but, and, I, and I did. So it's the greatest respect to me when my male jouster, jousting friends hit me as hard as they can because they know yeah. I can take it. So I love and, and it. And it's what you signed up for. You, you consented to it. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's a guy yeah. in America, um, I actually hit he, he was he won this world championship of jousting. That, that doesn't exist. There's, there's not a world championship of jousting. But, but he'd won a competition and um, that was claiming that name. Anyway, I hit him off his horse in Australia. And so there was a bit of a, you know, like a, a come and get back at, he wanted to get back at me. And we're great friends. We're really great friends. But whenever I faced sure. this guy, it was an epic Epic battle, epic hits, um, in the, but in the best, the best possible spirit, you know. We really, really have great right. affection for one each other. But holy smokes, when we get together on the field, Bolsa's going to fly. Excellent. Yeah, I've, I've seen this quite a lot in my classes where um, sometimes one of the male students is reluctant to hit one of the female students because they've been brought up and socialised not to hit women. Mm. And it's... Okay, it's much better that they've brought up that way than the reverse. But mm. but one of the things I've had to do is like sort of reframe it so that they realise that hitting this woman is a necessary. She needs him to hit her properly so that she can practice the art she wants to practice. And yeah. if he's not willing to hit her, then he's stealing her training time away from her. Absolutely. Um, in most cases, in most cases, a free framing like that is enough to kind of get them over that that thing, and and it is fine from there on. But there have been, you know, I have seen a, a couple of students um, who they're basically just not fit to train with women because they can't get over the fact that it's a female person. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess on the field, you know, we're wearing armor, so you can't really tell. You're sure. so focused on your target that it doesn't matter who's yeah. there. It doesn't matter who you're facing. You want to take care of them. You want to right. be safe. Uh, you want to you want to win. You want to be get a great hit, uh, but you want them to be safe as well. So you want to hit them in the right place, and that's the priority. You're a professional educator, and so I imagine that after handling classrooms of children, there's not much you're scared of. Are there any parallels or crossover skills between jousting and teaching children? Yeah, I, th I thought um, I thought about this, and I think that there are, you know. Um, and part of that is self care, being ready for the task. You know, you can come into some classes of, of uh, young people, and if you aren't ready, you'll be crucified. So I, I have um, kids. You're right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you will be. Kids are uh, can be crushingly um, not not vindictive, but yeah, merciless. Absolutely merciless, and and they take a lot of take a lot of fun in that as well. So so making sure you're ready, and you know something I actually pay a lot of serious attention to when I joust, because normally you know I have travelled across the world to get to a tournament. It's cost me a lot of money. 
I've had to take, you know, time off. It's a very, very big deal for me to, being an Australian, to get to an actual tournament. So um, it's a serious matter for me. So I make sure that I pay, pay strong attention to hydration. So for two or three days beforehand, I am topping up on water all through the day to make sure that when I hit the tournament, I'm so hydrated that um, I won't um, be disadvantaged in the heat. Because normally, you know, when you're jousting in Europe in the summer, it can get really hot. And once you sure. get dehydrated, the armor, you start to feel the real weight of the armor. And it's devastatingly heavy when um, when you're really dehydrated. It's just not possible to joust when you're dehydrated. So, you know, same with the classroom, you've you got to be hydrated and, and the nourishment as well. You know, you teach better when you're, when you're, um, when you're well, when, you've, when you're not hungry, when you're well hydrated. Same with jousting. Um, I, I don't eat during the day when I joust. I make sure I have a really good breakfast early and that I, I really have to manage my water on the day though because obviously once you get in armour, you can't be ducking off to go to the loo um, quickly. Sure. So that's something. Um, also, being um, I prepare very carefully on the day of the joust. So what I do is I get ready very early. I like to be the first person on the field, if that's possible. And same with teaching, you know. Still, now that I've been in education for more than 30 years, I would still type out a lesson plan if I was going to give a lesson. I still want to be clear about what is it that I'm going to be teaching today, what are the outcomes so, um, yeah, if, if you're not prepared, you get nervous, both in the classroom and on the field. So being prepared helps you feel super confident and, uh, you know, you can deal with any mishap because um, everything else is, is in place. And, and I guess, too, I, I really pay attention to detail. So just as I was teaching a class, um, I'd, I'd put a lot of attention and detail into a lesson plan and be be clear about exactly what I wanted to achieve. Um, I pay, you know, laser-focused attention to the task on the, the jousting field uh, so that I'm not wasting any energy on stuff that doesn't matter. You know, in classrooms, teachers can waste time on stuff that doesn't matter um, unless they're crystal clear about what it is, that, what's the learning that they want their learners to achieve. And on the jousting field, you know, I'm crystal clear about exactly the, the target that I need to hit and exactly the way I need to manage the horse I happen to be riding at the time to to achieve that. You know, I remember one time I was riding this enormous mare. She was like a rhinoceros in um, Poland and she was hard. She was strong. God, she was strong. And she was um, very, very difficult to manage. And I didn't have anybody to help me. And I thought, my God, you know, sometimes you can switch switch out to another horse if there's extra horses on a tournament, if a horse just is not managing well or it's just not a good match for the rider. And uh, this horse was barely manageable on the first day. And I, th I thought, okay, um, you know, maybe I can switch her out. But it became apparent that I couldn't switch her out. And so I thought, well, I just have to manage. I just have to find a way and find another way to ride this horse. So I rode her completely differently the next day and um, was able to manage her. But 
you know, I had to um, adapt in that moment. And that's, that's the same in the classroom as well. You know, if you're doing something and it's not working for the kids, you adapt in the moment, you, you pay attention, you adapt in the moment, and then it's better for everybody. Yeah, I, it strikes me that you have a particular kind of mental approach to the things that you do. And that's, that's how you do everything. Is that fair, fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. I'd yeah. like to think that if I want something to happen, I can make that happen. You're a magician then? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, okay. I have a couple of questions that I ask most of my guests. And um, I'll start with the first one. I have a suspicion I already know what the answer is, but I'll ask it anyway. What is the best idea you've never acted on? Hmm. Well, I'm interested in what you think that might be. But um, okay, I'll, know- I'll tell you. I'll tell you what I think it might be, if you like. Okay. I think you're one of those people that when you have an idea, you decide whether you're going to act on it or not. And if it's a good idea, you just go ahead and do it. And if it's not a good idea, you bin it. So you don't have any good ideas you've never acted on. That's what I think. <laughs> Ah, well, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm not that good. I'm just not that good. I, um, okay. I'd like to be that, that good, and that, that does apply in many situations in my life, but not a hundred percent. That's something I need to work okay. on. But I remember, you know, as a youngster, oh gee, I must have been maybe ten. I had this great idea, and gee, I wish I did it because I'd be rich now if I did. Um, I had this idea of creating fashionable horseware you know I I was a young person living in a country town in New South Wales in Australia and I told my parent um, you know I want to make pink pink horse rugs and pink horse leg bandages and 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 trendy stuff you know for horses yeah Yeah. because there was none of that at that time this was decades before all this started and I was told roundly that that wasn't a good idea and so I immediately just threw that idea in the bin and uh, I never should have done that. I should have acted in that moment and my life would have been completely different. But you know what, stuff, I don't resent the fact that that happened or I was given that, you know, discouragement. Um, it is what it is, you know. But, yeah, that was a really great idea and um, would have made me a lot of money had I acted on that at that well, time. Although, to be fair, the average 10-year-old doesn't have the... Uh, resources to act on an idea on an idea like that because you need to get designs done, you need to get it manufactured, you need to get it sold. It's not easy. It's not easy, but I'm a, I was a determined young person, and you know I, 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 I grew <laughs> I think up. Everyone listening is like, oh, I, I'm certain that she was very determined. <laughs> but see, it's different. You know, when you grow up on a farm with a wild mm-hmm. imagination and you have limited access to resources. You dream big. I dreamed big dreams when I hadn't travelled anywhere because I yearned to see the world and I yearned to do wonderful, uh, amazing things. And the great thing about um, being a, a young person who's fairly ignorant, you know, growing up in the bush, is you just do things without fear because you don't know any better, you know? Right. You you just sure. go ahead and you think, well, this is what I want to do, so I'm going to do it. I've made a decision. I'm going to do that. So have other people um, taken your idea and, and made millions from it? Oh, of course. Of course. The, the, the oh, fashion- I, I, I don't know. I, I, yeah. I, don't know the, I don't know about fashionable tack. 
Oh my so, god! So people are doing that, are they? Oh, that's the rage. Okay. Oh yeah, everything matching. <laughs> it, that's been yeah. People spend an awful lot of money. You know how people spend money on their pets. You know, Diamante sure. cat collars and fancy this, fancy yeah. cat this and that. Um, but take it to the horse level. Wow. This wow. is a, a major – you go into any tax store and it's going to be most, mostly about fashion for the horse and for the rider. Do you know, the last time I was in a tax store, pretty much everything was brown leather. Oh, but it was a very no. long time ago. Not anymore. You'll see a whole lot of Diamantes these days. Oh, God, no. Yeah. Well, that's actually quite medieval, really. I mean, you deck out the horse to look absolutely magnificent, and that's a demonstration of your status and prestige. Yes. So we're returning to that. Yes, in a in a different sort of way. Okay. All right. So, um, other than other than your your, so we say tack bling, idea when you were ten. Any others spring to mind? Um. Other, I mean that that was the that was the idea that I had that I didn't act on that would have made me the most money <laughs> and would have okay, changed well, my trajectory. <laughs> okay, so what would you be spending that money on? Now, Jousting? oh, um, oh, I would have a um, oh a fabulous tournament series. Um, it, it was my dream to have. A tournament series linked to my motto. So my motto is to live and ride with courage, with passion, and with integrity. So I'd have um, tournaments linked to that. So yeah, I'd be I'd be setting up you know the most amazing tournaments with. I, I also love cooking and dancing and dressing up and all that sort of stuff, all that medieval stuff. So I'd be creating um, you know the most magnificent tournament that you've ever seen with all the. The feasting and the dancing and the the parades and the heraldry and the music, you know, um, to create this amazing experience that people would never forget. Uh, I would just suggest that in this imaginary tournament, you hire somebody really, really competent to run it and manage it. So you're free to joust all day. Otherwise, you'll be forever answering the phone. Yes. Yes, I agree. Good idea. (laughs) (laughs) Um, okay, now my, my next question, you've probably already answered it. Um, so if somebody did give you like a million dollars or some large chunk of money to spend improving historical martial arts and combat sports, such as jousting worldwide, how would you spend the money? Mm. Well, yeah, I'd set up that tournament, but there's another level. Okay. It's the hard thing about because there's not that many tournaments in the world. It costs a lot of money. It's hard to get sponsorship. A big part of it is there's only so many great horses, you know. Right. Um, yeah. You need a, a really specially trained brave horse to be able to do the joust. And we're really lucky in the UK. We've got the most fabulous horse providers um, that, oh, the, these people provide horses for movies and these horses are so experienced in, in so many things. It's just amazing. So what I would have is like a training camp before the tournament for all the riders that's inclusive. It's more inclusive than anything that's happening at the moment because when we help each other get better, that means tournaments are all safer. 
Sure. I think, that, you know, one tournament uh, that I went to, because often when you go to a tournament, you have one day of practice and then you're in. It's all, right. it's, you're at the tournament. But at this particular one, it was in New Zealand, we had um, three days, you know, the first day to meet the horse and have a ride, the second day to do some preliminary training and try the armour on um, and do a little bit of light jousting. And then the third day, we actually had a couple of passes at the actual tournament venue. So everybody felt very settled the horses felt right, you know, the riders had a chance to connect with their horses. And so when it was time for the tournament the next day, everything was, was flowing smoothly and, you know, that everything had been ironed out. So what I would want to do is um, have an opportunity every year where joust all the jousters um, at every level could come together and actually spend a lot of time um, getting a lot of feedback because it's really hard to get feedback. I actually bought a video sure. camera when I started so I could, because it was so hard to get fe real feedback, I would analyze my own videos and uh, look carefully at photos that were taken so I could try and improve in the moment, see where my lance was. Because, you know, when you really can't see much when you're jousting, you don't you know, you see some pictures and you think, oh, my God, you know, like, did I do that? Or or I don't like the way that I'm starting or I don't like the way that I'm finishing. So that opportunity for riders to, to get feedback and to see themselves, like take videos of other riders and help them to see themselves and understand what they're doing. And that way the level of safety in the sport goes up and it's a much um, happier and, and um better sport for everybody. So so I'd have the tournament, but I'd also have that training aspect. So everybody had a chance to improve. Ah, so that's a really good idea. Am I right in thinking that the event in New Zealand was organised by Callum, Callum Forbes? Yes, Callum Forbes, yeah. yeah, Order of the Boar. He does a great tournament. He does. And he's been on this podcast before. Uh, as oh, has your fellow jouster, Toby Catwell, who you must know because the jousting circuit isn't that big. Well, you know what? My armour is based on Toby's black armour. Really? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so, so I felt, you know, when I met Tony, Toby in Australia the first time, I actually went, and, I, I purposely went and introduced myself because I, I wanted to let him know that, you know, my armour was homage to his armour. Now, it obviously looked different on me because my body is very different to his body. Sure. But, yeah, that his, his armour was my inspiration. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, he's a very interesting chap. Um, and he, we're recording this at the end of October. He His episode of this show came out a couple of weeks ago. And yes, the, the equestrian load, uh, the equestrian listeners are like very enthused by it. He got into the whole, um, he got into being an arms and armour conservator and sort of curator in the Royal Armouries in Leeds and in Glasgow and in London. His, his entryway into the museum industry was through jousting which is just so cool Can yeah very very cool very cool a uh, life trajectory yeah so you would organize these events with extensive training days beforehand to yeah bring up the level of the, it's something, something we see in our pedestrian martial arts i mean literally pedestrian we're on foot um where most events these days, they'll have a tournament, but a large chunk of the event is classes and training sessions and what have you before and around the tournament. Yeah, and that's great. And, and we just don't have that. Well, I and guess it's very expensive. 
it's extremely expensive. Even the balsa, you know, that mm. you need for a tournament is expensive and that just gets broken on every pass. And the, the number of horses, I mean, you're really limited by the number of horses that you've got. So, um, yeah, normally you'd have six to eight riders. I went, went, once went to a tournament in Texas and had 32 jousters. Wow. And uh, it was way too big. I, I was actually sitting on the field for an hour in full armour before I had a chance to get a hit because I happened to be the last one in that wow. particular round. Um, so they, they came from all over America, those riders, and they, they brought their own horses. But, yeah, when, you, when you're trying to set up training and um, trying to run a tournament, to have those horses, because remember, you don't just have the horses ready for that tournament. Those horses have to be ready all through the year. Yeah, that's you have to feed them. You have to yeah. train them. It's a it's a daily expense. So this is a real limiting factor, you know, in um, in um, inviting a lot of people to be able to be training together. Right. So putting a lot of money into the horses. I mean, ho- yeah. horses have always been expensive. Yeah. Well, yeah, they take up a million. That. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't go very far with horses, I don't think. It'd be a small tournament, let me tell you. Yeah, if I was having a great, you know, if I had a team of, say, 20 horses, you don't think of polo polo teams. Um, yeah. They have 12, 12 horses per rider or something like that. You know, I might have 20 horses. And even then, you know, I, I could probably only have 15 riders. Wow. Yeah, yeah. How do the polo people manage it? I think they're just really rich. <laughs> I only know a couple of people who play polo, and yeah, that's pretty much been my experience. Um, I, I I know one guy who used to play polo when he was young, and he was really annoyed because when his dad died, his sister ran off with a chagall and a bunch of duras. Uh huh. Right. Like, what does chagall and duras mean? I don't know. Okay, chagall, chagall, very famous uh, painter. Uh, Dura, uh, German artist from the, I'm going to say 16th century, late 16th century, early 17th, I think. Um, but basically, we're talking about, in modern terms, several million quids worth of art. Oh, wow. Right. And that's, that's just, she, she half-inched it before the tax inspectors came around. Wow. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. And so, so, so he played polo. Ah, well. Because, because his dad was the sort of person who had a Chagall hanging on the wall. That's the sort yes. of rich that gets you to play polo. Yes, it's an extremely elite crowd. <laughs> yeah. Um, wouldn't it... Maybe, maybe we should come up with some way of basically converting the polo crowd to jousting. Hmm. Are they brave enough? <laughs> now, that was a gauntlet thrown to the ground with a mighty clang. <laughs> Actually, something I used to say, and it's still it's still true. I still believe it. That when I retire, from, I'll retire to rodeo from jousting. But I think the cowboys might all have a have something to say about that. <laughs> uh. Oh wow! Well, <laughs> thank you very much for joining me today, Sarah. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank you very much. It was great fun, guy. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sarah. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast. While you're there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. Of course, if you're on my mailing list, you also get 
what is currently a weekly newsletter with cool sword stuff and absolutely no spam, I promise. And of course, you can unsubscribe at any time. I do not take it personally. So I'd also like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. It is actually really useful to me to have a group of people who I know are really supportive of the show, who I can ask questions of, particularly like, who should I interview next? And and so-and-so is coming on the show. What questions should I ask them? And so on. It's like a... It's like having a little focus group that I can turn to whenever needed. It is super useful. So thank you very much, my current patrons. And if you'd like to join us, you need to go to patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. Thanks as always to Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. And join us next week when I'll be talking to Pradana Pandu Maharika who is a co-founder of the Gwethi Megir blog. There's a lot of words there I probably did not pronounce right. So you're just going to have to tune in to hear them done properly. Um, That blog makes historical martial arts accessible to Indonesian people with limited or no English skills. So it's written in Indonesian, which is very cool. Pradana is also an archer, tailor and translator, as well as being a military historian buff and one of the sort of founding figures, I guess, of historical martial arts in Indonesia. So you don't want to miss that. So subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show and leave a review if you have an extra minute. It really does help. And as always, if you have friends who you think should be listening but are not, chide them and scold them until they do. Or you could just like send them a link to this episode. That would be cool too. So thanks for listening and I will see you next week. Thank you.